Hi there, I'm AR, and this is the seventh log in the second discussion on The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Welcome to the Lore Research Lab. Today's thesis, filling in the blanks, guidebooks and the gaming experience. Can guidebooks add to the enjoyment of a game, mostly from content and storytelling perspectives? Is that possible? It's time to deep dive, folks. Okay, so the background here, it's kind of like preliminary, infra preliminary information for the background stuff I'm going to be discussing in the second part because I'm going to be using that to dis describe the kind of um, the, main, the main conflict of this game, one of the big events that precedes the story that the game actually takes place in. I can't speak English as per usual, I'm so sorry. I'll be able to construct a sentence better. Bear with me. Um, what I'm going to be discussing here is just some preliminary information to all that stuff. That big can of worms. Um, it'll help explain three key events that I want to discuss in, or, yeah, events, conflicts, three key events that I will be discussing in more detail. It will be three, I promise. I know it's going to sound messy, but just keep that in mind. I'm going to get to three main events that I want to discuss in detail. So. I'm going to talk a little bit about the guidebooks themselves. So I've mentioned them in my intros, but I'll just reiterate it. Um, if you look it up, the three that I'm mainly using is the Hyrule Historia, the Encyclopedia that comes from the same set, and the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild creating a champion guidebook. All of the guidebooks have their own translators, reviewers, authors, so forth, like lots of different uh, contributors. Um, but the first couple of pages acknowledge the collaborative efforts made by Nintendo in compiling this information. So I, I realize I, I don't think I actually discussed this in my intros at all. I don't think I've actually brought this up at all. I'm, 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 I'm a student. I, I study history, ancient histories, a bunch of diff different kinds. There's so many. Um, I'm not here to brag or anything. I just, I, I am familiar with the way research is conducted across different kinds. Different kinds of studies. Ah, I can speak. Okay. Um, and what I mean by that is just research about history, the way, like, research applying to history. Not scientific, just or strictly scientific, but research applicable to history. And, you know, there's, there's lots of different concepts that I've learned, and there's one concept that I really like, and I think it applies quite well, is a concept called negative, is a concept called negative evidence. And that's a term that refers to information that we can extrapolate from what's missing. So it's from what we don't have that that's how we try and understand, as opposed to the physical evidence, something we do have, know stuff about, and can understand or try and juxtapose on some level to other sources, materials, for example. So the thing is that regardless of having physical evidence or the, the idea of having negative evidence, there's a tendency to over-rely on, I guess, what we do have. So, you know, either way, it's not good. We either rely, there's a tendency to either rely too much on one source, or maybe we have to base a lot of our conclusions off of just what we can extrapolate. And we're not really filling in the blanks, right? There's stuff that's missing and, and it's frustrating to not be able to fill in those blanks. So a lot of our historical sources tend to have that trend and it sucks, but that's the reality of it. That's the case with, you know, all ancient cultures and a lot of the material evidence we find for them. One of my favorite things to say is that it's just pottery, just ceramics. It's all we got. It's, it tells stories. 
uh, I, I, I say that, that like, they just, yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, for example, what we know most about ancient Greece, for example, it comes from a limited spectrum in terms of the literary sources that we have. It comes from a limited spectrum of Greek historians. Um, and, you know, they conducted their own research and recording from Athens. So there's a bit of an Athenian-centric perspective to a lot of the writing that is known um, in our sources. And those writers were definitely elites in their societies. So the information that we try and construct that history around is inherently biased. There's a skew, right? It's not like we have um, just your average guy who runs a farm writing stuff or constructing, get like, you know, writing poetry and things like that. We don't tend to get sources from more obscure things, the more mundane aspects of life. It's mostly going to be from these elite guys. So I want to acknowledge my own bias here, because uh, that thing is clear. I've already, you know, said a couple times now that I'm relying on these guidebooks quite a bit. I was originally just going to use the Hyrule Historia, but the encyclopedia offered details that the Hyrule Historia doesn't and uh, like doesn't have, and the Creating a Champion guidebook explores different aspects of Breath of the Wild in a way that neither of those two guidebooks could because they kind of preceded um, creating a champion, or at least the compilation of all that extensive information. I did question whether or not to mainly reference these guidebooks, like maybe I should I don't know, try and recruit a lot more sources and not just these books or not just using my own brain kind of thing. Maybe try and draw on a lot of different things at once and not just these these books, that kind of thing. Because what this means to say is that the way that I'm applying these guidebooks to my theories and my research is that uh, it's almost like it's gospel. I'm taking this as fact. What I'm reading, you know, in these guidebooks in front of me, that kind of thing, I'm accepting that as... Probably, you know, I'm not really, it's not something debatable. I'm gonna take it as fact. I, and I, I question whether or not this is limiting my scope, and now I want to present this question openly. Why don't we question what we know as fact? You know, under what criteria do we determine whether something is a trustworthy source or not? It's a very loaded question. I'm just putting it out there, food for thought. Um, because uh, if, if I consider my own research, and I'm taking these books, just these books, solely as fact. I'm gonna take everything else that I reference with a grain of salt, um, unless I know that it can be trusted to the degree that I trust these sources. Um, so, it, you know, then I question myself, why, why am I trusting these sources so much? Is it because it, I know that Nintendo was involved in the creation of them? I know that there's interviews of a lot of the key, you know, principal creators of the game, uh, you know, that their interviews are here, or there's developer notes, so it's like, it feels like I'm really interacting with the people who made this game. Is that why I'm trusting it so much? It's, uh, even then, the information that's provided doesn't always fill in all the stuff. There's still things that are, are left unchecked to degree. So, uh, you know, how do, how do you determine those, those kinds of factors? How do you ascertain what is fact? What isn't the basis of our sources? Do we typically know who the authors of those sources are? And if we don't, then how do we really trust something, you know? I know I know it's a bit loaded, but it's all stuff that I wanted to put, just present and then also consider for myself because I care a lot about the research that I'm doing here and I really want to investigate and really discuss all these cool theories and uh, all these interesting topics. And I want to fill in those blanks, even some of the stuff that the guidebooks don't offer. 
I want to see if there's anything else I could fit in because using more than one guidebook can maybe fill in some other blanks. It, it, it's like a gigantic puzzle that I'm trying to fill knowing that maybe one or two pieces are never going to be put in their spots because I never will be able to access those two puzzle pieces for lack of a better metaphor. Um, so, uh, you know, if you consider principal creators like the lead director, Eiji Alnuma, you know, he's, he's made, he's made this, he made, he worked on Breath of the Wild, he worked on Ocarina of Time, he's worked on so many games. It's, it's, it's really, it's really, I, I really wanted to know, I, I think I mentioned before, did I say it earlier? I don't even remember at this point, that I really wanted to, oh, it was probably the previous episode, where I, I wanted to address that I personally wanted to engage with these games in a, in a more closer uh, kind of space. I want to know who's making this stuff that I'm really enjoying. So knowing that, you know, I can attach a name to, um, or multiple names to these games that I really like, those creators. I like that aspect of it, and the guidebooks offer those perspectives. You know, there's an endless list. I could keep going on about this. Um, but what I'm here to say is that I, um, that this is why I would like to argue um, the way that guidebooks can get really creative and how using them as references can add to the gameplay experience. So to answer my question, I'm going to be arguing from this point onwards through a lot of narration and description and really, really bad jokes how guidebooks can add to the gameplay experience. It is possible. So, here's some game background. This is gonna be a ride and a half, guys, okay? It's gonna be a ride and a half, folks. What was the Great Calamity, and who were the champions? Okay, it sounds like a bit of a di divergence from what I was originally talking about in terms of guidebooks, but I do have a point here. Bear with me, part two. Um, I have referenced the Great Calamity on like multiple occasions now, so I want to spend I want to spend some time summarizing to the best of my abilities. You could even call this a summary. It's more like a I don't know, really overloaded Wikipedia page at this point. Um, summarizing what that event is. So, 100 years ago, like in the game, I mentioned that Link more or less died. We watched through, we, we watched through the recovery of his memories, should the player choose to do that quest. We watched this downfall play out. If you watch the cutscenes in order, it's like, you, you, see, you see it happen, you know? So, uh, everything's preliminary in this episode. I don't know why I structure things like this. Alright, I will mention the four champions first. Uh, I'll address that question first, because in order to explain the Great Calamity, I need to explain some of the key figures involved in uh, give their due justice as, as great characters that I really enjoyed. I need to talk about them in a lot more detail. Um, I've mentioned them a couple times, so it's like this is where I'm gonna dig a little deeper. So we've got Mifa. I've talked about her before. She was the Zora princess and the champion chosen to pilot Divine Beast Varuta. Uh, she was, you know, she was soft-spoken, she was kind, she was caring, but she was also a skilled warrior and wielded a weapon known as the light-scale trident. And just to top it off, you know, Mifa, Mifa had the whole package. She was fantastic. She, you know, she had healing powers. So, um, and you see, you see that in certain cutscenes. 
Her weapon, the trident, the light scale trident, is given to Link after Vavruta is freed from Ganon's control. For each champion you free from one of Ganon's blights, one of his like phantom blights or whatever, for each champion you free by, you know, beating the Divine Beast dungeon, you receive their respective powers. The four the four the four champions all have powers of their own unique to them. So Mifas is called Mifas Grace. It's a healing power that revives Link if he loses all his hearts and adds uh, extra ones on just for good measure. There's a feature in this game through through this uh, power, for example, and certain meals, if you cook them right, it can temporarily increase Link's existing heart counter. So let's say you had three to start and with Mifas Grace, you'll probably get like another five added on. Once those five that that her ability adds on. Once you lose those hearts, they're gone for good. So it's not like, it, it doesn't always replenish, but Mifa's Grace does. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll touch on that in a second. Um, I think Mifa's Grace is very useful because when everything is trying to kill you in this game, it comes in quite handy to have like an instant revival thing, uh, just swoop in, you know? Next, we got Daruk, who's the Goron leader and the champion chosen to pilot the salamander-like divine beast Bob Rudania. He was hardy, supportive, and out of endearment called Link Little Guy. It's really, it's really, it's really endearing. You know, his welcoming attitude, he's got just so much positivity stored in this. He's just got so much of it, you know? Um, regardless of how dire things could get, he, he was always just a ray of sunshine kind of idea. So the Gorons are a group of rock-eating Hyruleans in Breath of the Wild, and in Breath of the Wild they kind of resemble sumo wrestlers. It's mentioned, I think, in the developer's notes or something in the Creating a Champion guidebook that they were modeled to appear a bit more like sumo wrestlers. They're um, really big, certain um, physiological features are unique to them, so they're not quite anthropomorphic, like they don't look too human, but they don't look like a monster hard to describe, but they're really, they're, they have a really cute design, I think. So Daruk, he wields this gigantic double-handed weapon known as the Boulder Breaker, and Link can get that after freeing Valrudania from Ganon's control. His power is called Daruk's Protection, which mitigates attacks on players when using a shield. So what that means is that as long as you've got your shield up, you know, activated when you're battling enemies, um, you'll have this kind of red force field around you. So I was kind of touching on this with Mifa's Grace, but all of the champion's powers have limited uses. Um, they will refill after a certain point, but players have to be aware of using uh, the champion's uh, powers because there's, I believe, like three shields for Daruk's protection. When you run out of all three, you got to wait for the counter to fill up again to use them all, if that makes any sense. So next we have Rivali, who is an expert Rito archer and the champion chosen to pilot divine beast Va Meadow, the bird one. I mentioned in episode four, I think, that there was one champion who reluctantly joined, you know, the collective to fight Ganon. This is the guy. Rivali was brash, a little arrogant, and very, but very confident in his skills, and, you know, he was a great archer, so it's not totally... It's, 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 it's a grounded arrogance, I guess. Um, he couldn't stand Link, he was jealous of Link's role as the hero, and he constantly taunted Link, just non-stop. 
I mentioned in my rant previously that in the intro music that plays during the cutscene introducing the divine like introducing the divine beast to the player, there's beeping in the background very subtly in the in the in the score, resembling tones of SOS in Morse code. What's interesting is that in Meadows you don't hear the call for help immediately, which kind of re, you know reflects Rivali's hesitance to call out for help knowing the call for help would be directed towards Link, who he doesn't, he's not so hot about, you know? So, Rivali wielded the Great Eagle Bow, and if you free Bob Meadow from Ganon's control, then you'll get it. His power is called Rivali Scale. Along with Mipha's Grace, I find that this is really helpful when facing enemies. Of course, all of them are. I just like this one, and you'll, you'll see in a sec. Um, by holding the appropriate button, you create your own personal gust. You gotta hold it long enough for it to activate. But when you do, you spring up really high into the air and you can paraglide where you like. It's like you create your own little mountain and then you can just, you know, fly away and soar. It's a lot of fun. And this is obviously especially helpful when you're trying to escape from enemies. And, um, I like running away from my problems. So my instinct is to have something like that to help me out and just shoot up and paraglide to safety. Thanks, Rivali. Um, best for last, this champion, I mean, she's my favorite for like so many reasons. It's hard to describe. I'll keep it, I'll try and keep it short. I love all the champions, but Urbosa, oh my god, Urbosa, she's just wonderful. She's, I, I gotta tell you, she's, so she was the Gerudo leader, a race only comprised of women, located in the heart of the desert area of Hyrule. So the Gerudo as a race have their own episode to be discussed, like, in more detail, so I won't dive any more into that. There is a reason for all this foreshadowing, but just know that, like, all you need to know right now is that she was just a respected and beloved leader of this desert hailing group. She was chosen to pilot- bleh, she was chosen to pilot divine beast Vonaboris. You know, she was very mother-like in her behavior, she was fierce, strong, but she's also very thoughtful, caring, she was also very playful too. So, once you free Vatnaboris from Ganon's control, she, she actually has like two weapons associated with her. There's a shield called Daybreaker, and her blade known as the Scimitar of the Seven. Um, so, uh, after you free uh, Vatnaboris, that, that's what you get. Um, her power is called Urbosis Fury, which is a really cool name, by the way. Um, Urbosis Fury, which when you hold the appropriate button, it allows the player to create this gigantic field of lightning through an attack, a uh, spin attack, I believe. Oh, I just love it. It's so chaotic. I like lightning when it's not being used on me. I am more than happy to use it on everyone else. Taken out of context, that sounds kind of messed up. Okay, <laughs> so now this is where things are going to get really like... I'm just gonna really deep dive. I'm gonna talk about the Great Calamity itself. A lot of what I'm gonna be describing, it comes from the, um, it comes from the books. It comes from information from the game. This is mostly just me retelling the story chronologically of what plays out the Great Calamity itself. So in one of Link's memories, Zelda, him, and the champions meet at Lanary Gate, which is this passage. It's kind of this gate. It's this entrance way that leads up to the mountain leading to the Spring of Wisdom. The Laneru Promenade is this whole kind of stretch of land. It's a, like a passageway. Um, so that's that. Um, so in this cutscene, Zelda tried to activate her powers at the Spring of Wisdom, but failed. So Link escorts her back, informs the champions that she's still not ready. And, you know, for the most part, they're trying to reassure her. So Calamity Ganon jumps the gun on the unsuspecting hero collective 
like at this moment in time. Rivali being a bird, he flies up to sea in the distance, Hyrule Castle being enveloped uh, in Ganon's kind of spirit, his like whatever the malice, it's all kind of taking over the castle. You can see it in the distance, this gigantic dark kind of black and purple colored cloud swirling around. So it's a clear, it's clearly signifying that Ganon's come back. So the group, everyone quickly disperses, and the champions try to get to their divine beasts in time, while Link continues escort, uh, bleh, continues escorting Zelda, taking her to safety. I can speak English. So the Lanaru Gate they convened at is only relatively close to Varuta out of the four divine beasts. So the guidebook gives us a visual of the champions' presumed ba- uh, path back to their divine beasts. Um, so. Uh, I'll just quickly quote from the guidebook here, this line. It says, Due to the distance between the east gate of Lanayru Road, Hyrule Castle, Hyrule Castle, and the standby positions of the Divine Beasts, it's impossible to know what state Hyrule was in when the champions reached their designated positions. So, that's that's very bleak. That's, that's not so great. <laughs> it is known that no matter how quickly the champions, um, you know, got there by like by the time they made it back to their divine beast Rivali could fly so maybe he got there a lot faster than Urbosa and Daruk for example but regardless um they were probably confronted with the fan and the phantom why do I have all of why are all of my notes like this everything's a tongue twister confronted with the phantoms Ganon sent out to the corresponding divine beast so there's water blight Baruta, fire blight Barudania, wind blight uh, Valmetto and Thunderblight, Ganon, uh, Vondaboris. The guidebook states that, um, and this is more on Hyrule Castle, um, the guidebook states that the giant columns that emerged from the ground surri- surrounding Hyrule Castle, they were pre- preemptively corrupted. So I mentioned in a previous theory, discussion, whatever, that the Sheikah were responsible for creating autonomous machines known as Guardians, which appear, they appear in a couple forms. So there's flying ones, there's ones that are just stationary and don't move. Um, the most notable one is the stalker one, though, the guardian stalkers, because um, they move around on multiple legs are the most, uh, I guess, mo- mo- mobile, is that the word? I don't know. Um, but uh, they're also the ones that you're probably gonna run into and hate the most. Um, it is stated in the guidebook that these gigantic columns that emerge from the ground, um, they, were kind of like caches for tons and tons of guardian stalkers and were meant to be dispatched to protect the castle and castle town since in you know in the event that the great calamity does happen the citizens will be protected by these autonomous machines but because ganon was so trigger happy he was able to quickly convert these benevolent you know autonomous machines to malevolent ones i just needed an excuse to use the word malevolent quickly ending the lives of anyone who lived in Castle Town, which was a sizable population in and of itself. Most Hylians resided there, so you can imagine the terror these things caused. Just just decimation across the board. King Rome probably would have died in, in this ensuing kind of terror and chaos. Uh, the reason I had to talk about the champions in such detail is because their deaths are directly, they, you know, they, they connect to, they interact with the story of the great, the great Calamity as a whole. Um, what ended up happening, as the guidebook states, was most people were probably killed, and any surrounding towns uh, in central Hyrule were equally just flamed, destroyed, lasered by the guardians, 
in a game, the closer you get to Hyrule Castle, the more wreckage and decayed settlements you see. Like, you can, if you zoom in on the map, usually they'll zoom in and give you, like, a name of a certain location, whether or not you've accessed it. Sometimes you can only get that naming of a location if you've accessed the place, but there, there's a bunch that you don't need to do that for. There's a bunch of places in Central Hyrule that don't require that prompting, so when, when you go there, you'll be like, oh my god, this is all that's left of this X village. Um, and what that means is, of course, is that the central area of the map experienced the most devastation, but the Guardian Onslaught was not limited to this section of the map. So, the guidebook presents an interesting visual on the presumed path Link and Zelda took after splitting off from the champions, and what, sadly, that was their last meeting, when, when you think about it, it's kind of, kind of sad. Kakariko Village, home to the Sheikah clan, was positioned, uh, or is positioned advantageously, and it would become the place uh, Link intended to take Zelda to to keep her safe. Um, so since there is a narrow cliff encasing both uh, both entrances to the to the village east and west, um, it's it's a difficult climb for a guardian to scale. Guardian stalkers can traverse many surfaces. Um, you'd, you're probably thinking that maybe the flying ones, like the drone ones, would could make their way over, but no, it's it's just the stalker ones that you have to be worried about. Guardian stalkers, for the most part, can traverse any surfaces, but the natural kind of smooth incline and narrow passages don't allow for any kind of maneuvering. And these things are wide enough and big enough that this natural enclosure is a problem for them. Uh, I'll link the interactive map again so all this geography makes sense because I'm referencing it quite a bit here. Um, Kakariko Village isn't far from Lanera Gate, but the initial route Link and Zelda took was to see if they could still get to the castle see if they could still do something, and because they're not like Rivali and could fly up, uh, it's not like they could- they could see it, but they needed to see for themselves, that kind of thing. One of Link's memories shows him and Zelda running through a forest through pouring rain, and they're probably circling back after seeing the ruination of Hyrule Castle. So in the scene, you know, Zelda, she sobs into his arms and she laments over their situation, her lack of you know, she doesn't have her powers, she can't do anything. She's frustrated, upset, sad, all at once because she can't use her powers. It's mentioning at this point, basically to Link and the player, her father and the champions are all dead. It's like, we, we know this is a fact. So um, I do want to mention something really quickly here. In the game, you see guardians that are both dead and alive. So the ones that are no longer moving and remain permanently destroyed are basically the guardians that would have been alive during the Great Calamity what you see that's the stuff that's still alive or still moving around. Um, it's whatever's left of that kind of army of guardians that was unleashed. Okay, continuing. Continuing on. <laughs> Why can't I speak English today? Okay, it may not be entirely clear at this point whether or not Link and Zelda actually, whatever, make it to Kakariko Village, but we know that they don't, not together at the very least. So there's a field called Blatchery Plain, which is just outside this um, stronghold called Fort Hateno. It's not a very high-rising fort, it's pretty low to the ground. Um, and it leads to, farther down the path, it leads to a, a village known as Hateno Village. Um, and this plain, Blatchery Plain, this is where Link, you know, quote, quote, dies. Um, He's been, at this point in the game or story, cutscenes, whatever you want to say, he's been fighting guardians endlessly, trying to protect Zelda, and he just, he's collapsing, like he's, he's tired, he's really tired, guys. 
Link feels, you know, he feels really faint and he can barely stand, and that's when the two are suddenly approached by a guardian stalker. Just as it's about, you know, it menacingly kind of looms over them. It's like it's taunting them. It's like, oh, look at you, I'm about to kill you. Have a nice life, kind of thing. Like, it's just waiting. And then just as it's about to fire its laser at them, Zelda steps in front of Link. She says, don't, or something like that. Her hand lights up with the symbol of the Triforce appearing on her hand. And she stands in front of Link to try and protect him. She inadvertently activates her powers, and her light magic hits all of the guardians in the surrounding area. All of them. When you play through the game, and you go to this location, it comes up relatively early in the game, so you could see it, you know? Um, when you play through the game, you see remnants of all the guardians you defeated that day. Most of them had cascaded along the fort wall. They're just, they're just all decayed, and she did that all just, just with that one shot, you know? So, you know, though she saved herself and Link, Link, quote-unquote, dies. Zelda weeps. She hears a voice emanating from the Master Sword. The idea is this, the divine communication that happens, all these messages, premonitions, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, part of it, you know, it was conducted through this legendary weapon, and it's a voice you can only hear with harness powers. So Zelda's gonna act accordingly from this point onwards. So... I wish I could end the summary here, but technically the Great Calamity itself doesn't end. It, all this, all what this shows now is that Zelda, she has her powers now. Woo! Go Zelda! And I'm gonna try to sum up uh, describing this part of the game now. So this is this is the Great Calamity in its conclusion, basically. So while the standoff occurred outside Fort Hateno, a similar situation was occurring at a place called the Akala Citadel, which is this gigantic structure acting as a primary stronghold of the entire land because it oversees the the coasts and it's it's still inland enough, so it's like, and it had multiple vantage points. It's the kind of place that's difficult to get through without getting sniped or something or shot from like the cannons. There's lots of cannons. Lots of reinforcements are at the citadel, that's the point. Unlike Zelda's relative success outside, you know, Fort Hateno, the soldiers who, the, Hy the, the Hylian soldiers, the Royal soldiers or whatever, the soldiers that fled to the Akala Citadel tried to defend themselves from the onslaught of Guardian Stalkers, but they were not as successful as Zelda. This happened around the time that Zelda saved Link, so everything's happening uh, basically at the same time. In short, uh, you know, this is this is kind of how things play out after that happens at Akala Citadel after Zelda activates her powers. This is how it goes. Zelda dispatches nearby Sheikah warriors to take Link to the Shrine of Resurrection to heal his wounds. Because the voice in the sword basically said that he's not dead yet, that kind of thing. He's gonna he's gonna complete his destiny, don't worry, he's not he's not gone. He's not gone. Don't worry, Zelda, it's all good. Um, the guidebook outlines Zelda's path after Satan, like it shows like a little a diagram on the greater map, it shows the presumed path that she took after saving Link. So she goes to Kakriko village as originally planned, tells Impa everything um, she needs Impa to tell her when Link wakes up. Because the way that it, it works out is that one of the main objectives early in the game is you gotta go to Kakariko village and you gotta go talk to Impa. So Zelda basically informs Impa on all the things that you know, he, what Link needs to know when he gets up from his, his really long nap. She heads farther up north to this area known as the Lost Woods, where a one-of-a-kind pedestal rests. This pedestal is located in the center of the forest, meant only for, and, <laughs> you guessed it, the Master Sword. 
So because Link was fighting for so long and you know he, he was pretty battered himself, but so was the sword. The sword was um, a bit chipped and stuff. The sword itself was like a being of its own. It was weak. Um, so she, she goes there to take it back and put it in that pedestal. The forest is this this forest isn't accessible to the average Hylian and is inhabited by these strange little creatures known as Koroks, or the children of the forest, something to that effect. Players notice that once you play through the game, few people, aside from a lot of you know main characters, actually recognize who you are, despite you being this prolific hero that descended from a line of heroes. You're the, you're, you're you're a big guy. You, you you're you're the guy that's gonna face Ganon kind of thing. People should know who you are upon seeing you. Um, the Koroks are among the few that actually know who Link is and also know that Link will return at some point to defeat Ganon. Zelda knows this, Impa knows this, but not, not actually that many people know that. Um, geographically, the Lost Woods is actually quite close to Hyrule. So once Zelda returns the Master Sword to the forest, puts it in the pedestal, she goes to Hyrule Castle to confront Ganon, and then there's like a, I think, I don't remember when this cutscene shows up, it's probably in like when King Rome is narrating to the players in the beginning. And there's a cutscene where it shows Zelda at the entrance to Hyrule Castle and the, this gigantic, I guess, spirit kind of entity of Ganon. It looks like it's gonna eat her up, so it kinda, he kinda, he kinda does. Using her light magic, so she, I guess she technically does get swallowed up or whatever, for lack of a better description. Um, using her light magic, she forces him to cocoon himself in the castle as this divine power prevents him from corrupting the rest of Hyrule. It's like, it's like he's, I don't, I don't know, it's like you have a really bad bruise and you have to keep icing it, but it's like for a hundred years. Why can't I come up with good analogies? I'll figure out something. I'll get better at this, I think. I don't know. I can't guarantee anything. I'll try my best. I'm just being honest. Um, she more or less forces him to cocoon himself in the castle in the inner sanctum um, because of this divine power. So the initial onslaught of all these guardians just going out everywhere, whether it was Blatchery Plain, Akala Citadel, all the places that the guardians kind of made their way to, because that's not the only places. Those are just notable locations. It comes to like a very abrupt halt, ending the tale known as the Great Calamity. So it's thanks to Zelda that she went in there, he went all gobble gobble and then cocooned himself in this gigantic gross egg and the it stopped. Um, it's now time to talk about some seminal events or conflicts, if you will, that I, I would like to explore in greater detail that are mentioned through the guidebook. It's seen in the game, but the guidebook elaborates. So there's the Sheikah split, the the destruction, or I guess conflict at the Akala Citadel, and the surprising success at Fort Hateno. The key events that figure into the narrative of the Great Calamity with a lot more importance than one would think. You would be surprised how these three things play into the greater narrative and story, and the way the guidebooks really build off of it in a way that I wasn't actually expecting. Okay, so some key terms, some key names for the following sections. So we got the Sheikah, the Yiga clan, Shadow Temple, Sage of Shadow, um, Impa, we already know, I'm just gonna say her just cause I just should, and then Master Koga. Okay, so I've 
I'm dividing this up a little bit more because this is shaping up to be a lot longer than I intended. So this is just going to focus on the Sheikah first. I'm going to go to more terms and stuff for, you know, Akala Citadel, Fort Tateno. That's going to come later. So just keep that in mind, I guess, because I'm super organized, as you know. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the Sheikah in more detail because they have their own genealogy to unpack and it's closely related with a lot of things I mentioned before, the the themes, characters, um, all that fun stuff. So before I had the Creating a Champion guidebook in my possession, I made this observation before reading it in the book. And I think I told a couple of people as well that this is something I noticed. I don't think it's unique to me. I'm not special. Um, the Yiga clan, uh, they're an offshoot militant clan that was once Sheikah. And I thought because of this clear imagery, this was the case. Because the Sheikah have a specific symbol associated with them in most of their iterations. This is a very consistent symbol where it's an eye with a teardrop symbol just below the eye design. Um, so the Yiga clan, they have the exact same symbol on their mask, except it's inverted, so the tears on top instead of below. One thing I was unclear about was why this is the case, because that's the only, you know, it's the only connection I could make. I lacked kind of substantiating information at the time. The tapestry that I had mentioned in a previous episode that you know depicts the myth of 10,000 years ago, it also shows, I believe, some people who were either previously Sheikah and became Yiga or that kind of thing um, also on there, so I was confused about that. So I lacked certain details and now that, you know, once I acquired the guidebook, I was able to kind of answer some of those questions. So according to the guidebook, the split in the Sheikah clan is directly associated with that myth of 10,000 years ago. It is said that at this time in history, the ruling king at the time, he grew fearful of the Sheikah. And this was because the Sheikah in the broader history of Hyrule had become so technologically advanced compared to other Hyrulean cultures to the point that there was just this humongous imbalance. My past ramblings on how integral the Sheikah tech was to sealing away Ganon reflects this imbalance because again the reliance on Sheikah tech was so strong so you don't really get a sense that everyone else is able to contribute their own developments, their own technology. It's just the Sheikah that's doing all this stuff aside from our, our, you know, our main duo of Link and Zelda doing their divine works and stuff. Um, you know, and with all that being said, it's, you know, who else could be relied on to provide such technology? Because it wasn't, I don't think it's really implied that any other Hyrulean culture was making the kind of advances the Sheikah, the Sheikah wore. So going back to that, that myth, so this is, um, going back to the king being fearful of Sheikah, the end result was um, that paranoia led to the introduction of a new decree that kind of limited the Sheikah in their development and their progress, um, just limiting their, I guess, experimentation. So the Sheikah would face punishment, imprisonment, all that not-so-fun stuff if they opposed this new law. The Sheikah that eventually conceded to the king's wishes, they would remain the peaceful party. While the Sheikah that disagreed disagreed, would become violent. Hence, the Sheikah as we know them now on one side, and then the Yiga clan. The two parties are born, and that's where you get your split. So, this is going to be a bunch of bouncing around a little bit, but it's going to be fun. I really liked 
I really liked all the stuff I found while reading about the Sheikah. The encyclopedia has some really interesting details to offer on the history of the Sheikah, which help to explain the Sheikah from Breath of the Wild. It's a cool trajectory that we can follow. The encyclopedia states that the Sheikah, though not physically all that different from Hylians, um, they excelled at mobility, jumping, magic, hand-to-hand -hand combat, among other things. Um, they also, the encyclopedia also states that the Sheikah had a knack for research. So while the scientific and tech aspect is unique to Breath of the Wild, because there are, you know, labs that you can go to, we know that they created all this really cool technology. The idea of the Sheikah being basically juiced up Hylians with combat and smarts, that's not a new concept. So, and this is something I'll touch on later, but I can only just briefly say it for the sake of time. Um, the encyclopedia also states that during the eras of war, eras of war, that's a key phrase, um, the Sheikah were essential agents of the royal family. So they handled things like combat, intelligence, all that fun espionage stuff you wouldn't really expect from, I don't know, a 32-bit game or whatever. Uh, this is a direct quote from the guidebook. No matter how dark or perilous the task, they will do what is necessary from keeping the kingdom from harm. I think this speaks volumes about the Sheikah and all of their iterations. We can think of, you know, the gigantic mechs, the divine beasts as symbols of this role that the Sheikah have. Those, that being those who are essentially um, meant to safeguard the predestined, cynical cycle of doom that traps our hero and princess with a demonic pig. And it's a really fun time to be a Chica, I guess. Um, <laughs> Ocarina of Time is back for more fun on this, because you guys can probably already tell that I, one, love this game, and two, think there are just so many direct connections. I cannot, it can't just be me, okay? It can't just be me. Anyways, um, <laughs> Ocarina of Time, we're back, back, we're back, guys, with, with this game. And this is a game that's rated E for everyone. So, I still I still have to question this because after going to the shadow temple in this game mm, I'm not so much there's like other parts in this game that also make me question whether or not that's the case and definitely the shadow temple is like the biggest reminder that maybe this game is not E for everyone like the previously mentioned water temple this is another temple that has trials for Link um, in the kind of after the time skips you do all this stuff as an adult so all the it's all the challenges puzzles are harder and this temple is by far the creepiest the music the atmosphere of the temple um beyond all the symbolic traits the whole environment it's the kind of place you want to get out of as fast as you can i wish there was a sign in the temple that said just leave feel free to i i, I don't know we'll figure out how to do this temple without link's help just get out of here. It's not a good. It's not a good place to be. I'll add this in real quick because um, in this game, Impa is the Sage of Shadow. In Ocarina of Time, you first meet her as a child, and you first meet her as a child. She's not a child. You're a child, and you meet her. I can't English. She's the task protector of Zelda. She teaches you a song. She sends you off on your journey. Tells you where to go next in the game, kind of thing. After the time skip, uh, uh, she is revealed. Revealed. Oh my god, I'm slipping up on my words so much. I'm so sorry. I feel like there's going to be more of these shenanigans later. Um, she is revealed to be the Sage of Shadow after Link frees the temple from Ganon's control. Because there's this giant shadow monster that had kind of... It made things really bad in the village. It's called Bongo Bongo. I, it's, it's probably one of my favorite 
bosses. It's just the name. And it has it has like a drum, it has a bongo. Oh, it's just it's so it's supposed to be this really scary shadow monster, but I really love it. <laughs> um uh so like back on Impa, because I keep getting derailed here, like uh Link and Zelda to an extent, and this is something the encyclopedia also tells us. Impa 2 is fated to ensure that things just go don't go, you know? Um, it's up to her to also ensure the peace, because the Sheikah have a role in that too, I guess, right? Mm, we're gonna touch on that. Alright, so the temple itself. <clears throat> I said it's a place you just want to get out of, and this is a big reason why. It's like a torture dungeon. You know how you call these locations in video games dungeons? This one's an actual dungeon. It's too literal. I, I, ki I, kid, I kid you not. There, there are rooms in this temple that have big wooden crosses position kind of in the ground, usually in the middle of a room. There's there's more than one room like this. Big wooden crosses with, with chains on the opposite kind of top ends of the cross. Um, and, and these were meant for this torture method called flaying. And I, I don't I don't want to describe flaying, but if you consider where the chains are positioned on the thing and the, your hands and how you stand, I'm not I'm not gonna explain it any further. Look it up at your own discretion. All you need to know is that it's not good. It's 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 a method of torture. Um, and and my, my god, this game came out in 1998. This, it's E for everyone. E for everyone, guys. I'm, I'm Yeah, E for everyone. Yeah, I can totally see how this is a game that's E for everyone when they have something like that in a temple. You know, that, that was something I observed and had questions about before having the guidebooks in my possession. Or the encyclopedia, I guess. Um, um, because in the early part of the temple, I mean, there's just more creepy stuff here. It's, if it could, if it, if you think it can't get creepier, it always does. Just, that's, that's just the way it goes in the Shadow Temple. Um, uh, there's, in an early part of the temple where you first have to get some key items and stuff, um, there are this, this area with invisible walls that you gotta navigate through. Um, you have an item to help you with that, which it also has Sheikah stuff, that, that's just that's just an aside. Um, there's this area with invisible walls, and before certain walls that you approach, not all of them have these little messages, but there's these just cryptic messages. And they all talk about this bloody history of Hyrule, this is, this is where the the bloody history of Hyrule lies, or this is it just signifying all these terrible things that have basically happened at this temple. Um, and it made me wonder more about the Sheikah's role in that bloody history. Because this is this is located in Ocarina of Time's version of Kakariko Village, which we know is like a Sheikah location. Impa's house is actually in this game located there too, so the associations are quite strong. The encyclopedia, once again, it uh, comes to my aid. Um, so... Uh, it states that because the Shadow Temple is located at the edge of Kakariko Village's graveyard, um, which also has the tombstones of other previous royals, um, it was a location that symbolized the subliminal trust between the Sheikah and the royal family. The idea of the shadow, you know, being in the shadow, plays into the idea that the Sheikah, they operate in the background. They're not a group that people typically know about. I, I believe the, the encyclopedia also mentioned something like, there are some, basically, iterations where the Sheikah are just relatively non-existent, or just they don't they don't appear in any kind of chronologies or knowledge. So they're not they're not always a group that people know about. They're not always as high profile as you've seen in Breath of the Wild kind of thing. 
So anyways, at the, at the temple, uh, the encyclopedia states that this place was probably used for interrogating the enemies of Hyrule's royal family at its best. Interrogation at its best. And probably torturing at its worst, I think. I think I don't think that's implied. I think it happened. That scares me. Um, thus, it is taboo that this place is mentioned because uh, it reflects the darkness bred in the Sheikah, like in the Sheikah group, like as a group of Hyruleans. Um, there's a darkness there. And another dark connection to the royal family. Um, the idea that the face of the whole kingdom and every person in society, you can't have that that darkness appear uh, on the face of everything. That would just not, that, that wouldn't be so good, right? So um, the, the theme of covering up in order to protect an image, I think that's a very interesting theme. I think it's something we've, we've seen in history. I think it's something we even see now to an extent. It's an interesting political theme. If you remember one of my earlier discussions on mythology in these games, I mentioned in Hindu mythology as presented by the great piece of literature epic known as the Mahabharata, concepts of good and evil are easily muddled and not as distinct as we would like. We are comfortable with certainty. We are comfortable with being able to have certain binaries or distinctions. We, we want to have a good versus evil kind of thing. And it's not like the game doesn't play into that. Zelda's clearly the, the good one here and Ganon's the baddie, but the themes still complicate that relationship. And uh, I wanted to discuss the Sheikah because they reflect these complications in these Asian philosophies. Because um, that cycle may be very strongly um, tied to Hindu mythologies, but concepts of light and darkness very strong in Japanese stories and mythology. These themes of light and darkness through figures like Zelda and Ganon, um, you know, uh, it's th that's that has that negative connotation, right? That is a relationship that we will distinguish, as I said, as good and evil. But even among the good, even among our good guys, themes of light and darkness play out through Zelda and Impa. Impa is always really closely related to Zelda in some way. So I think it's interesting that Impa's own culture, her own um, participation as someone who is Sheikah, the Sheikah have this very complicated history. Those connotations don't make it so easy to say that you have the good guys and there's nothing wrong with them. We can't say that about the Sheikah. And, you know, typically the Sheikah, who can objectively be argued as almost like a safeguard for the realm, and in turn protectors of the Triforce because they're trying to protect Zelda and Link or whatever, Link's always involved in that somehow, um, they have a history soiled by these gruesome methods. So are the good guys really good? The, the Sheikah are really good in presenting that question, and it's thanks to these guidebooks it makes those distinctions clearer in the sense that we can see that these distinctions are complicated as opposed to just distinct, I don't know, definitions. So it makes that whole culture, that whole history so interesting. So going back to Breath of the Wild, we see this iteration of the Sheikah fall closely in line with the history that we actually see in Ocarina of Time. The Creating a Champion guidebook poses a similar description about the Sheikah, except it's a little bit more pessimistic. Because the Sheikah were able to construct gigantic technology that rivaled the powers of Ganon, not only the king, but the people of Hyrule feared their the, the group, they feared their capacity to grow stronger. So I will now quote from the guidebook. The Sheikah clan have served the royal family from the shadows and helped them maintain a prosperous Hyrule. Uh, over their long history, they have occasionally stained their hands with 
dark activities like assassinations and executions, it is possible their history is a cycle of bloodshed. Oh my god, isn't that so reassuring? Doesn't that's that's so lighthearted, right? Um before I touch on that, I'll quickly mention that the Sheikah were also responsible for passing down legends and their knowledge and protecting the image of the goddess Hylia, so Impa transferring that knowledge to Link as er like as early as she does in Breath of the Wild is not a coincidence. That actually has a thematic role. Thought that's cool. Anyways, you can tell that there, there, there's, there's a, lot, a lot going on here. It comes from a long history of protecting Hyrule, the royal family, all those stories. Um, it's, it's maintaining that oral tradition I think I mentioned before. Um, and I'll, I'll, this is just like a really quick aside because I just realized this. I just realized this cast I've mentioned a couple times now. It is said that, um, and this comes from the Creating a Champion guidebook, but it's also, he himself mentions it in the game. Whenever you talk to him, he says that his mentor was, was a Sheikah. His mentor was someone who taught him uh, all these songs and all these stories. So the Sheikah aren't just passing it through our hero. We see that they're actually passing it to faithful pupils, if you will. There's a thing outlined in the guidebook that says apparently that it was like a Sheikah bard or someone in the court that actually had feelings or potential, I guess, feelings of affection towards Zelda, but Zelda's heart wasn't exactly there. And he or whoever this bard sung these songs and sung of the myth basically and then transferred it to Cass because it's believed I think at the time of the Great Calamity a hundred years earlier that they also died in the in the wreckage and stuff so Cass is like the only surviving memory of that guy as well um I thought that was interesting too so the oral tradition is very strong with the Sheikah and that's something that I learned after going through the guidebooks and seeing what I could remember from the games anyway yeah there's there's a lot going on here if you can't if you can't already tell um, uh, and going back to the Yiga clan, I think the traces of them can be found as far back as Ocarina of Time, or any of the games that correspond to the Hero Defeated timeline. I didn't really investigate any other of those games, just so I could try and keep this shorter. I'm so good at doing that, at keeping things short. Um, I, I wanted to just focus on Ocarina of Time, uh, but I would posit that those who interrogated or tortured enemies in the Shadow Temple would have maybe done so without too much fuss, and those were the people that were likely to oppose the decree, oppose not the oppose a decree that would control Sheikah behavior. And that's what we see in Breath of the Wild: is that these anti-Sheikah basically are they 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 don't they don't want to be held to a standard, and they don't they don't they act on their worst impulses, kind of thing. Um, I think it's interesting that, like, the encyclopedia and, you know, my earlier statements on cynical cycles, that this guidebook, it poses the idea that, you know, the explicit behavior of assassinations and executions, and can I just say that language of, oh, they have occasionally stayed there, occasionally? Why does that sound so casual? It's so dark. Why is it occasionally assassination and executions? Well, you know, whatever, whatever the case about the occasional assassination or execution, um, the Sheikah also seem to be trapped in in the cycle. You know, they're permanently split and in conflict, or at least have are predisposed to the conflict, because it's not something we explicitly see 
in Ocarina of Time, for example, but we see it in Breath of the Wild, um, they're at the very least predisposed to this this conflict among themselves. It, it reminds me of, you know, things like yin and yang, the, uh, the Sheikah, um, the idea of two different entities creating a whole. Um, the Sheikah are, are more or less fighting themselves. It's like, it's like looking in a mirror, except that mirror is dressed in red and you're dressed in blue kind of thing. I, whatever. Um, uh, you, you are your own worst enemy to, to an extent. I don't know, it's an interesting concept. Um, before I finish discussing the Sheikah, I'd like to go and talk about the, I'd like to briefly go over the Yiga clan in a little bit more detail. Um, they are located in a remote area of a valley within the Gerudo, Gerudo, Gerudo Highlands, um, which is kind of in like the southwest corner of the map, kind of sort of. Um, like the Sheikahs, the, the peaceful Sheikahs Kakariko village, the Yiga clan hideout has a distinct Japanese sound and aesthetic. You see it in their attire, you hear it in the music, both of them, the Sheikah and the Yiga. You hear it, with, you, hear it you see it. Um, I believe uh, some of the instruments are not directly Japanese, some of the um, instruments that were used for the composition, like the Guzang or Pipa. Uh, um, uh, well, I might be confusing that with other tracks in the game, but there's a very cultural feel, at the very least, to these locations and their sound. Um, something very ominous about the Yika clan too. It, it, it's very, it's slightly discomforting, the music of the Yika clan. I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe that's just me. Um, the Yika clan are best known to players as some of the most annoying enemies you have to fight in this game. They disguise themselves as travelers and they try to kill you and some of them even straight up get upset at you if you say that you don't like bananas. The Yika clan have a strange obsession with bananas. I mean, I gotta get that potassium, I guess, here. This is my sickle. Eat the end of it if you don't like bananas. Like, I don't, I don't know. There's a dark humor aspect to the Yiga clan. And I don't know, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure why why that that's that's specifically used in the game. Like this is not this is not accidental. This is this is a thing. This it it looks intentional. It feels intentional. You know, there's on the less comical side of things, so the, as the dark side of the dark humor, I guess, there's an entire side quest or shrine quest where um, you gotta go through all these different steps to try and get one of the shrines to come out of the ground. And this is actually a location not that far from Kakariko Village. You just gotta go up a hill and it's kind of this wooded area that somewhat oversees the village. Anyways, um, this is a quest that, that shows you how evil and bad they are and um, it reveals that when one of their spies decided to leave the Yiga clan, um, they killed this guy's wife in retaliation. Like, the guy was part of the Yiga clan, but then he rejoined the Sheikah. He wanted to start a family. He didn't want to be part of the murdery life no more. And that's that's how they respond. They killed his wife. And, and you see that dialogue play out, and then you gotta beat the Yiga clan guy that narrates this whole thing. It's, it's really brutal. It's brutal stuff, right? And, I mean, um, I don't know, but their desire to have potassium, I guess, it just maintain that intake, um, and their final boss, Master Koga, the, the final boss of the Yuka clan hideout, because there is a whole segment where you gotta go through the hideout, um, super covert section of the game that continually stresses me out to this day. Um, once you arrive at, to the final boss at Master Koga, 
him and in the same vein as the potassium obsessed henchmen they're treated like punchlines uh, you know koga uses magic when you fight him but he's relatively easy to beat and the reason you win is it it's like cartoon humor it, he created this gigantic spike the he uses spike balls during the battle when he when you fight him but the way that it ends is that he creates one that's so big to the point that he can't even see Link. Because um, you're fighting kind of in this very open area. Um, it's it's kind of in 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 the depths of like the, can the canyon, basically, kind of thing. But it's more or less just the two of you fighting. And for some reason, there's this gigantic hole in the center of uh, where the kind of area, the ground you're fighting on. Um, this is behind him, this this big hole in the ground. Um, and, you know, this big spike ball that he made himself rolls towards him, and in this strangely comical fashion, this ball pushes him and the two, the ball and Master Koga just plummet below, just wee. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that, especially considering all the stuff that I've read about and not just me simply replaying that segment of the game or something. Uh, I, I, you know, the reason I wanted to talk about the Sheikah split was because of these really interesting themes of cynical cycles and these bloody histories, you know, that kind of complicate our assumed good guys, right? The Sheikah, they're supposed to be on the good guys side, right? Um, all those interesting stuff, all that interesting stuff I discussed before, I, can't, I still can't ignore the way the Yiga clan members are are treated like this, like treated like punchlines, um, despite how bloodthirsty they're supposed to be. Like you have that side quest that shows them that these guys are pretty bad. Um, and it's not like gender limited, I'm saying guys, but it's, you see female travelers, you see male travelers, you see, you got the whole bunch. It's like, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I do not know. It's, it's a real mystery. Um, maybe that's something I solve for another day. The Creating a Champion Guidebook, it, it says that the founding behavior and beliefs of the Yiga clan are more or less, like I said, kind of mentioned earlier, it, it touches on the worst impulses of, of the Sheikah. That this is, the Yiga clan is kind of this symbolic, physical representation of the lowest, most evil form um, a Sheikah, you know, individual could possibly take. But all I can think about is their obsession with bananas. They have, they have, they, when you beat them and they kind of disappear and like whatever, yeah, like when they just kind of disappear because you don't like kill them per se, they just kind of apparate out um, or work out. I don't know what the word is. Um, they, they usually drop some money and bananas and, and usually their weapon, but mostly they always have bananas. They always drop the friggin' bananas. And, and, and like they, it, when you go to the hideout, they have a whole room dedicated to storing that fruit. Like, I remember when I was checking my inventory, there was like, I don't know, I had like, I don't know, 50 something at the time, because I stocked up. You can, bananas are not just Yiga specific. You can buy them at markets and stuff in the game. But I remember I had like 50, and then after that room, I had, after going to that room, I had like almost 70 or something like that. Like, why did they have so many bananas? I still can't figure out.